John chapter 6. I know there's, before we even get started, there's a lot of people who are sick today, and there's a lot of people who are on vacation. But there are still more who would see it their responsibility to withhold fellowship due to a difference of opinion. And I want to say publicly that that offends me as a Christian deeply. Man of God, and that is all of us, are not to be defined by disputable matters or opinions. We are to be defined by Christ. And to withhold fellowship intentionally for no other reason on the day that we celebrate communion is offensive to me and to all of us gathered here. And that needs to be said. We put great pains to fellowship with one another. <clears throat> we open ourselves up to a great deal of uh, hurt at times. And that needs to be said. I want you to encourage people. I want you to hold them to what I hold myself to and what you hold yourself to. We may well disagree. We may well have a disagreement of opinions. What of it? What is that in the face of Christ? Please do not withhold your fellowship from one another. How would you ever push one another on to love and good works if we did not weather storms of that small nature? <clears throat> I will be addressing that directly at our annual business meeting here in two weeks. But today I need to just say that because I can feel it in the room and it is not right and for those of you who are listening online if you are able to be here and you are not sick or on vacation and you're a member of this church you owe your fellowship to us John chapter 6. Let's pray first. Our Father, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to love your word. If we set our minds on the things of this earth, Father, we know that we will end up hating you. For such is the pervasive nature of evil. Father, set our minds on the things of heaven. Where neither rust nor moth destroys. May we treasure those things. May we treasure them in our hearts. 
May Christ be our all in all, our food from heaven, our bread that gives us energy, our hope that gives us life. Your word is a lamp to our feet. Your word, Father, is a light to our path. And we find comfort in it this morning. We pray, Father, we find more than comfort. We find life eternal. In your son's name, amen. John chapter 6. It's been since uh, a little bit after Thanksgiving since we have been in here. Because of Advent and the anticipation of the coming of Christ and the celebration of that at Christmas. Um, And then last week, we were back in the book of Chronicles, and I thank Ralph very much for sharing that message in my stead. Um, I'm grateful for him. I want you to know in his absence, since he's not here today and would blush all over, you guys have an unbelievable elder in Ralph. I've not met a man like that in many, many years in ministry, and I want to thank him without his presence here because I don't want to wreck that attitude with pride. Not that I'm saying he'd be proud of that. I need you to know that. I've seen that man in trenches that most people have never seen him in. Um, And as I said to him, I will share now publicly, he would run circles around 90% of the people I went to seminary with, and he's never set foot in a theology class. That speaks volumes of the man that I've grown to respect and defend, and I will continue to do so. Um, My thanks to him in the midst of all of that. John chapter 6. So we haven't been in John 6 for a month and a half. Don't forget, John is writing to you here and to me, reader, that we might believe on Jesus Christ and live. You say, well, what, what benefit is it to me to read something that's evangelistic like this? I already believe on Jesus Christ. I pray that for everybody here. I already believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I already came to life eternal. So why go through the Gospel of John? I have said many times throughout my years that fellowship is simply evangelism after salvation. Think about that for a second. Fellowship is evangelism after salvation, constantly reminding one another of the gospel that we do not front ourselves or our church and instead front Christ and have him be preeminent in all things, in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our town, in every word that we say. Why should it be that we would front ourselves? Who are we? Why should it be that we should front our church? What is Sherman Bible? In the face of Christ himself, why is it we are here? We are here so that we constantly challenge ourselves to glory in Christ only. It is what we went through the book of Philippians for. It is now what we are going through the book of John for. We are going through that because we are makers of idols. It's what humanity does. And you know that sin that we confess every week together here? That sin that's still in our members. We still want to go out and make more idols of this world, don't we? 
We find something that we respect, and even if it's something good, we add the evil of worshiping it on top of it. Even the apostles were subject to this. You see John, who's witnessing a holy angel, immediately bows down to worship him, bringing that evil that's still in our members to something perfect. And he gets reprimanded for that. The same goes for anything that's not Christ, anything that is not God. It is not deserving of our worship. It is not deserving of that level of obeisance. And Christ here will remind the people of this exact thing. John is reminding all of his readers of this exact thing. It is only through reliance on Christ that life will actually bring itself into this temporal existence. I think a lot of people talk about eternal life as merely where you go when you die, but that's not how the scriptures put it. No, we have passed Past tense, we have already gone from death unto life upon salvation in Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And for those of you who want to learn more about that, 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, we're working through the study of the Holy Spirit. He is the life giver. There is no square of dirt that he hasn't touched that hasn't brought forth life. There's no drop of ocean that didn't respond with teeming life upon his command. There is no Christian without him bringing us from death to life, and our eternal life begins when the Spirit of God brings us to life. That is why we are not earning it. We are not working our way up to it. We are not hoping we get it when we die. No, we have it now. We have the hope of Christ now. This belongs to us, and what Christ is saying is, how is such a thing sustained? And Christ reminds the people today, I'm trying to give you a a simple summary of where we're going today. Christ reminds us today that the people of Israel wandering around the desert had the exact same lesson. They were fed with physical manna from heaven every morning, every single morning. They would go out, with the exception of Sabbath, bear with me, Every single morning they would go out and collect this manna and they would make it into bread and cakes and eat it. Tasted like honey, looked like caraway seeds, bizarre stuff. Not stuff of this earth, obviously. God had made it specially to feed them. And he tells them in Deuteronomy why he gave that to them. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I am feeding you in the desert with this bread so that you learn that man does not live on only bread. That's a, that's a strange thing to give them a bunch of bread for. Yes, so that they know that that's not enough. You must live on everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus, in his own temptation in the wilderness, quotes. God says, I give you bread from heaven so that you will learn that you cannot live only on physical stuff. The church, to apply it to us, does not live so that we can have a successful building or name or anything. People, you who belong to Christ, your lives are not your own. You are bought with a price. We glorify God with our bodies. We glorify God with our minds and our soul and all our strength. Why? Not because we're trying to earn salvation, but because we've come to life. And that's what this life does. It glorifies God Almighty.
because of that, how do we sustain our lives? It is by Christ and Christ only, he, the true bread. And that is our title this morning. True bread is true life. There's the simple version. Let's go to the scriptures. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 34. Let me ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read this remarkable section. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. Remember, Jesus walked on the water in the middle of the night in the previous passage. I know it's been a few weeks, but... Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, will give to you. Excuse me. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, Boy, isn't that a great question? How do we do the works of God? Jesus answered them, one sentence. This is the work of God. Go out and do good stuff. You got this. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No. Believe on him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? More bread, basically. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave that to you. He didn't give you the bread from heaven. It was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Sir, give us this bread always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for these words of encouragement and of challenge. We pray we are encouraged where we ought to be encouraged, challenged where we ought to be challenged. Father, that you would teach us not only what your word means, for knowledge alone can puff up unto pride. Father, it is not only knowledge that we seek. We seek new hearts. We seek to love your word. We seek to establish our steps not only after the example of Christ, but, Father, in the life of Christ himself. May we enjoy this true bread from heaven and believe on him whom you have sent. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I see that there's a difference of translation you picked up. I want to answer that question. Was that what the conversation was? Oh, Deuteronomy? Or Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 was that reference. Yep. I wanted to answer that because I saw some confusion. No worries. That's perfectly fine. And I will say this. If, if you've got questions, 
uh, or constructions or curiosities during sermons, I have no problem being interrupted. Please, make it as interactive as you want. Um, I do lose my train of thought, but I will find it again. (laughs) It might be derailed, and I need a crane to fix it, but I will get it on that track, I promise. Um, Luke chapter 6, verses 22 through 34, is perhaps one of the most complicated sections about the teaching of the eternal life that has come to us, but also one of the most clarifying. One of the great things about the Word of God is, one, it is difficult. Two, it takes work. Three, yeah, that's about, yeah, that's pretty good. Those things come to us with a great deal of work, but it is life-giving and worth it. That's the third part. Life-giving and worth it. This crowd had followed the disciples to the other side of the sea. What did they experience the day before? This is the crowd of 5,000 that was fed by the miraculous multiplication of loaves and fishes and all these types of things. And then they gathered up all the pieces and it was as many baskets left over as there were disciples gathering up. Which means maxed. Maxed out. As much as you can possibly imagine, left over, left to bless further. And this crowd was like, well, that's easy. That, that's, let's make him king. That's what they wanted. They wanted to take him by force and make him king. That's verse 15. They wanted to force him to be the ruler. What more do we want from our rulers but free stuff, right? Every politician knows it. Jesus says, that's all you're wanting from me? Absolutely not. And he left from the midst of them, left. The disciples went to the other side of the sea. Christ walks across the water. Astounding. There's a handful of videos I want to see if that's how heaven works. That's one of them. I want to see the fear on the disciples' face, and I want to see Jesus just trucking it across the Sea of Galilee. That, that, it calls to mind the creation of the world. It calls to mind the, the flood. It calls to mind so many different things. Just to see that would be astounding. Um, Regardless of such, the disciples are scared of him. They are, they are freaked out about what's going on. And Christ says, look, don't be frightened. <laughs> don't be afraid. Why? Because it's me. If it was any other spirit, you should be afraid. But it's me. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And then another miracle that most people miss, the boat is immediately where they were to be going. A couple miles away. I love that. I love it. They had been rowing all night, pushing against the winds, even dropping the sails so that they're, they could row, and they're rowing against the wind, and it's blowing against them, and all these things. Jesus steps into the boat, and it's not like he just calms the water. He brings them to the destination. Done. No work. And that is a foreshadowing of what he was going to teach them the next day. What is the work of God? How can a man be right with God? How can we live up to holiness and perfection? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are at that destination. It is not a progressive thing we work up to to try to make God happy so that we cross our fingers when we die. No. Believe on him whom he has sent And that eternal life is here now. And death has no power over it. That's the real hope of this. 
That God will be glorified in our life. He will be glorified in our death. He will be glorified in the eternal state. He will be glorified in our resurrection and our worship for all eternity. And here we see these pieces of this eternal life breaking into this world. Something as innocuous as a piece of bread that they would eat every day, he uses to teach them something about it. You eat this normal bread every day. And it sustains you every day. But think with me for a second if there was eternal bread. That if you eat, you will never hunger again. Think with me about this water, John chapter 4, that you come to this well every day to draw out for you and your family. There's a water that I provide that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And the response of the people that were the participants of the feeding of the 5,000 and the response of the woman at the well is identical. Give us this sustenance. We're tired of having to make our own bread. We're tired of having to come out here and draw water every day. And Jesus turns the whole thing on their head and says, I am the water of life. I am the bread from heaven. The same way bread sustains our physical life, Christ sustains our spiritual life. The same way that we thirst for water in a dry and weary land, we are to thirst for Christ in this dark and fallen world. Because we see that he provides something that we cannot manufacture and that we will not find anywhere else in this world. Life, eternal But that's not what the crowd wanted. What did the crowd want? Bread for each day. Don't speak to me of things eternal. We just don't want to go to the grocery store. The next day, verse 22, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. By the way, that's Eucharisto, where, where the historical church got the term Eucharist for when we come to communion. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? We've been trying to find you, basically. Jesus answered them and says, not, hey, you found me, but... He goes right to their intention. Why are you seeking me? He answers it for them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is verse 26, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Now that's interesting. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Those are two different accusations. What's the first one? You are coming and seeking me not because you saw the signs. In other words, if you saw the signs and you're seeking Jesus because of what those signs taught you about him, so much the better. He provides sustenance that keeps life going. I want to come to him for real sustenance that brings me to life. Great. That's what seeing the signs would be about. We're not here for the tricks and the miracles. We're here because of what the signs taught us about you. You turn water to wine, something normal into something jubilant. 
You turned bread into millions of pieces of bread. That's a great sign. A sign of the expression of the gospel going everywhere. But they missed that. They just go, we like multiplying bread. And we're okay with that. That's as much as we want from you. We will give you kingship. You give us this bread. That's it. Mutual, symbiotic relationship. And we'll just leave it at that. You be king. We get free bread. Jesus wants no part of it. He says, you did not come to me because you saw signs. In other words, you're coming to me for wrong motives. You came here because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's it. That's what they wanted from him. The creator of the world. And they wanted bread. That's like rubbing a lamp and getting a genie and wishing for a broom so that you can sweep the floor because you notice it was dirty. So short-sighted is this that Jesus points it out to them and say, essentially, and this is how John is having us interact with this, he's putting this juxtaposition where he says, you've got the word through whom all things were created and they're happy with a couple of baskets of bread. That's, that's enough. That's as far as we want God in our lives. Bring some physical blessing and that's enough. And we think that we've risen past that. Oh my goodness, do you know the amount of churches that are filled with people that are just looking for God to pad their bank accounts? We just want blessings. We don't want to serve him. You will have neither. You notice that Jesus didn't make more food for them. Instead, he challenges them to the very heart of what is driving their intention. Do not work for the food that perishes. Food that perishes is all food. We create refrigerators to stop it, drying food out so that it holds it off. But eventually, no matter how well you canned things or how poorly you canned things, every food will spoil given enough time. Except one, actually. Honey is the only one that doesn't. But that's just a remarkable side thing. God makes that. You don't. All of this food will spoil and destroy itself, won't it? Do you know what the case? You're in the pantry and uh, you, like me, uh, pull out the potato flakes the other day and you see that a mouse had eaten the back of the box. Don't you love it? No, I don't either. I want my pantry to not have something like that, and so it drives me crazy. And so I move the potato flakes and set out some peanut butter on a special little contraption for him. <laughs> so he will get what he wants and what's coming to him. Regardless of all these things, what Christ is saying here is, look, you're so short-sighted that you're looking for food that dies. Why are you looking to preserve your life with food that dies? There's another food. Don't you know? Don't look for the food. Don't work for the food that perishes. But work instead for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, 
okay, so that's the works of God, right? We want to work unto the food that endures to eternal life. Okay, how do we do that? How do we do that? Because if this is what the physical bread looks like, the true bread must be amazing. If this is what faulty bread that leads towards death looks like, what's that awesome bread? And they're just like, we've heard of awesome bread before. We didn't even have a name for it. We literally in Hebrew called it manna, which is a question that is just translated as, what is it? It was fantastic, so we were told. But before they get to that, Jesus answers their questions. You want to know how to work for the food that endures forever? Do the works of God. And so they ask him, what are the works of God? What is it that we're to do? Aren't we here asking you for bread and you're saying you're not going to give us any more bread? What are we to do then? Believe on me. Trust on me. I am that bread that endures unto eternal life. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. This is the works of the Father. He sent the Son into the world that those who believe on him might not perish, but have life. Sounds like what John's writing about, that you may believe and live. And so let me talk about that word believe for just a second because I think a lot of people think it means that we just agree that Jesus is all this philosophically. No. We have a much closer word to it in English than faith even, and that is rely. Rely on Christ and live. Depend on Christ and live. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and you will live. Trust in Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his sacrifice, and you will know life eternal. Believe on him and you will live. It is said many different ways throughout scripture so that we do not miss the point. It is not about us, it is about God. It is not about the glory that comes to us by following Christ. It is not about our reputation. It's not about any of these things. It is about Christ him and him alone as the glory of our salvation goes to God the humility of our hearts grows and that is precious that we would humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord that in due time he would lift us up and so because they did not Want to believe on him, they challenge him. Okay, they said, you're claiming that the Father has sent you. Do a trick. Do a miracle. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? We are the judge and jury. You are the defendant. Prove to us that you're worthy of being trusted. Is this not how our culture looks at God? We have our ways of verifying things and being sure of things. God must speak to us on that level. We must be able to find him in the classroom or in our philosophical books, or we must be able to find him in our chemistry sets. 
rather than how he has actually spoken to us in his word, we look for him everywhere else and say, God, if you just speak to me the way I demand you speak to me, if you just show up the way I demand you show up, if you just bless me the way I demand you bless me, then I will follow you all the days of my life. And God answers back and says, no. Then they insult him. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, subtext, we're better than you. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, just as he is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You want to tell us that you're from heaven? Give us heavenly bread. That's a great sign. That would be a marvelous sign. Better than the bread you made for us yesterday, which was just earthly bread. We want that heavenly bread. That stuff that rained down on the ground, just like our forefathers had. Moses was able to bring that sign out. Now you should be able to do that. And this is where Jesus says, you are still looking only at this world. You are thinking that Moses brought manna from heaven. Moses didn't do that. God did that. And just because Moses was faithful in these things does not mean he was the one making it happen. It's just the same way when we look at evangelism. When we are sharing the gospel with people and when you say, well, I I shared the gospel and they're not coming to salvation. I failed somehow. No, you didn't. And should it be successful and they come to Christ, do not pull your success from that transaction either. When you share the gospel, my friends, that is faithfulness that is success how quick are we to define success by the world's standards and say only count only results only good emotions are worth pursuit no success for the Christian success for the church is wrapped up in one word Faithfulness. Success is faithfulness. In the sight of good days and in the sight of bad. And what these people were saying to Jesus is, look, we want good days and then we will follow you. We want free bread Fine, you tell us you come from heaven. The Father sent you. Great. Moses, who's obviously better than you, he was able to bring heavenly bread. You just bring earthly bread. You should bring better bread. And Jesus looks at them and says, do you think Moses did that? Let's extend it back further. Do you think Moses split the Red Sea? Do you think Moses gave you the laws to live by? Do you think Moses wrote these things? Do you think it was Moses that was interceding for you on behalf of the people of God? No. It was God who was doing this. Look at what Jesus' response to this is. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. Now stop for a second before you read the giveaway in the next verse. You want heavenly bread? The manna was just a picture. 
and it was better than anything anyone had ever eaten. Think of the best food that sustains our earthly lives. For me, it's sitting in my fridge. I bought a steak for the first time in like eight months. And I'm going to cook that this week. And I'm going to cover it with mushrooms and onions, such as all people who cook good steaks should. <laughs> and it will be medium rare. <laughs> my Christmas present to me. As good as the best food we have, it didn't even measure up to manna. They didn't even have a word for it. It was so unnormal. And Jesus says, even that, you just want to go back to that picture? That was just a picture of me. The bread that comes down from heaven. And so he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. You know why? Moses has no right to heaven. Pretty straightforward. He cannot go to the storehouses of heaven and bring it down. Why? Moses was merely a man. And so that's what they were saying to him. You are merely a man. You're claiming to be God. You're claiming God is your father. You're claiming to be God. And what is Jesus expressing back to them? I am no mere man. Not only can I bring bread from heaven, I am that bread of heaven. He says in verse, 33, verse 32 is first. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Why do you eat lunch? Why do you eat dinner? Why do you eat breakfast? Why do you eat any food? It's so that you don't die on the most basic level. When you stop eating, you will learn in about six, seven, eight weeks that you can't live without bread either. You have to eat something in order to continue to live and exist. What Christ is saying is the same thing that it is for our normal sustenance in this life. We have to eat. Sometimes we dress it up so it's also enjoyable. It's not just... And I tell you, I've prayed multiple times and multiple meals. Thank you, God, for not making food bland. But don't let its good flavor distract me from its temporal nature. This food perishes. If I don't cook my steak soon enough, it's going to perish. Everything tends towards death here, including food. They learned that with the manna, didn't they? If they tried to keep it for two days, what happened? God sent not just bread from heaven, worms. Worms inside of a sealed jar. What did they learn? This is not the bread that you should be satisfied with. Because this bread from heaven also perishes. He says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 through 5. The reason I'm giving this to you is so that you learn that the best bread in all the world. In heaven and on earth is still not sufficient to live on. You have to live on the things that proceed from the mouth of God. The word of God. 
capital W, the word of God, which was made flesh. He's standing there in front of them as the word of God himself, that thing on which all people are to live. And they're asking for bread. They're asking for the picture about him. It would be similar to walking up to him after he rises from the dead, steps out of the tomb, and you say, not good enough for me. Can you um, maybe make this grass grow a little bit quicker and see if that's a good trick? It's missing the whole point of why they have bread in normal life, why manna was even given. Everything was to show that no matter how good the bread is, no matter where its origin, even if it's heaven itself, this bread perishes. This bread, though it gives bursts of life, you will die. There will come a time, if sickness does not take you, that you will no longer even want the bread that sustains life. And what Christ is saying here is filled up in verse 33. For the bread of God, and here he speaks of himself, as he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Not to Israel, to the world. All people without distinction, no matter if they're Jew or Gentile, male, female, slave, free, child, adult, I am the one who comes down from heaven. He will follow this up in verses 52 and 53 with saying to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. It is not that following Christ is a better life. And this is where a lot of cultural Christianity has missed the mark entirely. Christ is not an add-on to our life. He is our life. He is not someone who just comes in and makes our life a little bit better. No, he's someone that promises, if you follow me, things may well get worse. But death will have no power over you anymore. The grave has been defeated on your behalf. Life everlasting has broken into your temporal life and it shows up in ways that the Spirit brings utterance and action and love and intention. He brings out joy in the midst of situations that have no business with joy. He brings peace that makes no sense to us, even describing as a peace that passes understanding. This isn't just feelings. This is a rock-solid foundation of who we are in Christ. That we are self-controlled, not given to outbursts of anger and wrath. That we are kind with one another, forgiving one another, as God has forgiven us, tender-hearted, gracious with one another. This is the eternal life of God breaking through into this 
dark world. And they, still looking for bread, said, fine, we will change our question. Give us heavenly bread every day. And they missed it. They missed it. The Savior, the creator of the world, is standing in front of them saying, trust on the one whom God has sent. I'm him. I'm here. I'm the one that manna was looking forward to. I'm the one that Moses was looking forward to. I'm the reason why bread is a thing. And still, they just want groceries. And he declares to them where we will pick up next week, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will not thirst. You will seek answers and fulfillment nowhere else when you find Christ. You will not seek it in yourself. You will not seek it in your family. You will not seek it in your church. No, you will seek it in Christ alone. And you will ensure that if you have children at home, they know of Christ. Because you want them to know the same life that you've come to know. And you will find and desire that for those who you fellowship with at church. You will desire that they understand, love, and enjoy the grace of God that you have partaken of. And we want that for one another. We pray for this, don't we? God, teach us what your word means. Teach us to love what your word means. And a greater miracle, teach us to desire that each other love what you love. God, give us strength to this end. May we want Christ only. May we want Christ only. Christ once finished off his longest sermon with a little story, and I will do that as well. It's found in Matthew 7, if you don't know it, but if you've been to Sunday school, you know the story, and you can just listen. Two men built their houses. One, probably because there was nice views and good weather, built his house on the sand. But as all sand is next to water, when the winds blew and the waters rose, that house crumbled and fell, and great was its fall. The second man built his house on the rock. Same storms and the same winds and rain blew, but the house stood fast. Why? Because he heard the words of Christ and was able to endure. I want that for every single Christian that has ever heard my voice. I want nothing more for you than that because it is everything. I want nothing else but to hear Christians be happy for what Christ has promised. And I want them to want it for one another with an earnestness that they do not understand. 
Build your house on the rock, my friends. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Our Father, what we have in Christ, as you have well expressed, is better than anything in this world. What we have in him is life eternal, unchanging, unshakable, indestructible. What need have we to go to another promise? What need have we of pedestals for people? What need have we to establish ourselves by the footpath of another? We have Christ, and he is enough for us. Father, more importantly than that, we have Christ, and he is enough for you. He is the propitiation and the satisfaction of our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of all who would call on his name for salvation that you bring to life. Father, before the world was, you called us. You predestined us. You regenerated us. You brought us to life again. You justified us. You are sanctifying us. And you will glorify us together with your Son, our Savior, our joint heir, our brother. May the Holy Spirit dwell in our lives and in our hearts and bring us to glory in Christ alone until the end of our days. We pray in his name. Amen.